Welcome everyone to Christian Historical Fiction Talk. I am your host, author Liz Tolsma, and I'm so very glad that you joined us for this episode. If it's happening in the world of Christian historical fiction, we are talking about it here. And if there are authors that are making news, we are sure to have them on the show with us. And that's just what is happening today. We have a very special guest with us. Before we jump into this interview with our guests, let me tell you a little bit about her. She has a 1930s Boston mystery series set in the city's historic North End. And she has another Sherlockian-inspired series featuring two lady detectives that takes readers around Edwardian-era Toronto. She also has contemporary romances, which infuse her passion for all things Europe, and that's the three-quarter time series. And if that isn't enough, in 2020, she has also released her first nonfiction book called Dream, Plan, Go, and it's a travel guide slash memoir that inspires you to adventure near and far. Probably a really rough year to be releasing that, but it will be available for you when we can start traveling again. What we are mostly going to be talking to this guest about, though, is her most recent release, which is set in London in the post-World War II years, and it introduces the readers to some of the most beautiful churches, including the Christopher Wren Churches, that were damaged in London during the war. And so it is my great honor to introduce to you today's guest, author Rachel McMillan. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Hello. Thank you for having me. I know that you have a very busy schedule, and we're thankful that you took some time out to spend with us today. Why don't we just get started and have you tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I live in Toronto, Canada, and I actually write two different things. I'm currently writing some nonfiction and some fiction. So I have London Restoration that just came out, but I also have a nonfiction Christmas book coming out October 6th with Harvest House called A Very Merry Holiday Movie Guide. And it's all about made-for-TV Christmas movies and how to incorporate them into your traditions. So that's kind of fun. Other than that, I read a lot and I love to travel. Clearly, this has not been the best year for the travel, but (laughs) I'm hoping it comes back soon. But that's just a little bit about me. I'm, I'm very very much a voracious reader and I I love to write and especially history I've always kind of been uh, drawn to different time periods and imagining what life would like be like if I lived then so that's just a bit about me thank you for joining us all the way from Canada technology is wonderful that we can talk like this isn't it yes <laughs> The book, The London Restoration, obviously the title gives away the setting of the book, that it's set in London. And I know I read one review that called it a love letter to London, and I would definitely have to agree with that. Why London? Why does that hold such a special place in your heart? Well, it was funny because I actually didn't intend to ever write World War II fiction, and I actually wasn't 
going to write London at all. I was currently writing a historical mystery series set in Boston. Um, but I happened to be in, and I, I studied in the UK for a bit in university, so it's somewhere that is familiar to me. But I happened to be in London on vacation. And I was, it was not a writing trip. It was not a research trip. And while there, I decided to go to some of the places in London I hadn't been to before. And one of them was, I Googled the oldest churches in London. And one is one called St. Bartholomew the Great. It's in West Smithfield, not that far from St. Paul's Cathedral. And I went into that church and it's almost uh, a thousand years old. And while I was in that church, I was just so overcome with the fact that it had survived Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries where he ruined all the churches. It had survived the Zeppelin bombs of World War I, and it had survived the bombs of World War II. And I was really just overcome with this moment where that scripture, the powers of hell shall not prevail against them, it overtook me and I heard a voice saying, what are you going to do with your passion for these churches? And I knew at that moment I needed to write the London churches. So I had a notebook with me and the rest of my vacation in London, I took notes. I started with some story ideas. I figured that a book on Christopher Wren and his time period wouldn't be ultimately saleable, but it really was a very significant spiritual moment for me in recognizing that these churches were just rebuilt and rebuilt again, that the verse from Matthew overtook me and I realized that it was a calling that I needed to do something with it. So that's where the churches came in. And after that, I obviously wanted to parallel the restoration of those churches with um, a married couple who are reunited after the war. Usually we would stop the film at the moment where the two lovers reunite after years apart. But I wanted to take that further and show what life was like as they were choosing to fall in love with each other again. So it just started with the church. That's always a very good place to start. Yes. And I just love that you're right. The restoration of the churches parallels the restoration of this couple's marriage. So that was so interesting to me to see how you wove that together and how the stories ran concurrent to each other. That was really well done the way you tied those in together. Thank you. So you sort of hinted a little bit at why you chose this time period. But could you go into it a little bit more? Because like you said, World War II is popular, but writing in later 1945 and into 1946 isn't something you see all the time. Well, I would say that, you know, in my role as a writer and an agent, I know that in the industry, you always have to be looking ahead to where the trends are going to be. Because as writers, we always want to write and get a new contract with our publisher. And I knew that World War II was very, very popular, and it continues to be so. But I didn't know if often when you're contracted for a book, they're buying the book for two or three years out. And I didn't know if World War II would still be popular. However, I had an inkling that 
people would start to branch out because there's so many World War II stories, but I thought it would be really interesting to present to readers a glimpse of the war that was brewing right after the Second World War, which was, of course, the Cold War. And as soon as, you know, I have an MI6 agent character, um, Simon, and as soon as he's finished his work at Bletchley Park, he's already dealing with this new war. And so I thought that gives readers a bit of everything. If they're really into World War II fiction, they get the flashbacks to Bletchley Park. They get some of what Brent, my hero, was doing on the front lines as a stretcher bearer. But if they really want a bit of suspense in their romance, then I can definitely do a bit of that by going into this new war that was all about ideology and all about intelligence. And I thought that that was a really interesting way to work my love of churches and my love of this period of history into something that would be fresh in a way. And it certainly was that, like I said, very unique time setting being immediately after World War II. So that was very, like you said, very fresh and something different that could be appealing to a wider base of people. And I think that the Cold War is something that's not touched on very much in fiction or especially in Christian fiction. So perhaps you're going to start a trend maybe where you will see a little bit more of that. Well, I think as Christians, you know, anytime there is an ideology or a loud voice, and that was a lot of what the Cold War was, people looking for something to follow and believe in after their worlds were shattered in a war. And I think that whatever period of history we live in, we have to be very careful with the loud philosophies and ideologies that we allow to influence us. And so as a Christian writer writing from a Christian worldview, the Cold War is fascinating to me because of that. As you know, Liz, you know this from your own books, when you're writing World War II, you want to humanize both sides as much as possible because there were so many moments where people really believed that they were doing the right thing. And so I think that the Cold War offers as a writer, just an uh, an immense amount of characterization potential and something that's just a little different. I think that we sometimes assume the war ended and everything was perfect, but Londoners were still on rations for several months after. I'm currently working on a book that's coming out next summer and it's set in Vienna in the post-war years and that it, it was cratered. It was bombed. So people were still starving. They were out of housing. And I think that that allowed for a lot of the new ideologies to creep in. So it's just a really rich period of history. And I'm, I'm really excited that I've been able to play with it. Oh, that sounds really interesting. So this new book that you're working on for next summer in Vienna, is that a sequel to the London Restoration or is it a completely different book? I call it a companion book. So it's called The Mozart Code. And I call it a companion because you will recognize two of the characters from the London Restoration. The hero is Simon Barr and the heroine is Sophie Villiers. And there are two people that Diana, my heroine in London Restoration, worked with at Bletchley Park. And of course, in London Restoration, Diana is doing some work for MI6 and Simon is her handler. However, you don't need to read one to read the other. I hope people get enough of a taste of Sophie and Simon that they want to learn a little bit more about their background and their history. But a lot of 
what keeps Simon mysterious or hard to understand in London Restoration is a lot of what we delve into in the Mozart Code. So it's takes, it takes place in Vienna and in Prague in the post-war years, just just as the Iron Curtain was about to start falling. So it's it's really interesting to go to Eastern Europe in those years. Oh, yes. Wow. That sounds fascinating. I'm going to definitely be looking for that when that comes out. I, you have me hooked already. And I would highly recommend to everyone, in the meantime, between now and next year, pick up the London Restoration and get to know Simon and Sophie a little bit before <laughs> they, you read their story next summer. Now, you mentioned that you visited lots of churches when you were in London, not doing research on this book, but actually doing research on this book. Uh, which one was your favorite? Uh, and it's, this is a hard question. And I should mention that, yeah, that one trip, I went back though the next year, I was lucky enough to go back just before I pitched this book. And I spent 10 days just in London churches, just studying them and wandering around them. I think that there are so many beautiful Christopher Wren churches. And Christopher Wren is the architect who was charged with rebuilding the churches after the Great Fire of London in 1666. So of course, there's a parallel between that fire and the fire bombs that uh, rained on London during the Blitz. And so I, I should point out that Wren did St. Paul's and it, everything people say about St. Paul's, if you've never been, is true. It is absolutely a mind-blowing church. And so it's it's always been a favorite of mine. As, But it, it's really hard because I think this will sound a little silly, but I did so much research on the churches and studying the replicas of the blueprints of Wren's designs for them and just immersing myself in the world that all of the churches there feel like friends to me somehow. But as I mentioned at the beginning of our interview here, the I would say personally my favorite church in London is St. Bartholomew the Great. It overwhelms me, the history there. It's so beautiful. It's unassuming. It's not the same. It On the outside, it doesn't look like anything special, but then you step in and it's so gorgeous. And I think that there's something about the resiliency of that church and the fact that it isn't the big towering St. Paul's or one of the glorious cathedrals, Southwark Cathedral, but it still has this amazingly resonant history. And I have a personal connection to it because I felt so called to write about the churches while there. So rambly answer, but there's, <laughs> there's some church love for you. <laughs> No, no, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful answer. And to study churches like that really is very fascinating. It, you go to Europe and that's the thing to do is to go study the churches. They are spectacular and like you said, filled with history. We don't have anything in the United States that's a thousand years old. Yeah. So to to find a church that's a thousand years old must just it must just give you the chills. It does. But I do like to point, like, there are some beautiful, there's a church here in Toronto, uh, St. James Cathedral, which isn't nearly as old, but I, I mean, it's, it's still beautiful. And, you know, in the States, there's remnants of some of the London churches in the Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell 
was wrought by the same bell casting company that did the bells at St. Paul's, which I find so fascinating. I think that there is the Old North Church in Boston has the same bell ringing structure as Notre Dame in Paris. So even though we might not in North America have those sprawling old cathedrals, we still have a taste of that history, which I find so interesting. So yes, it's uh, the churches are certainly something else. So now, since you're such a London aficionado, if I were going to go to London and only spend one day there, and I know you're clutching your heart right now, (laughs) only one day in London, but if I only had one day to, to spend in London, what would you suggest that I do? Where should I go? What should I see? I think that London is an amazing city because so much of it is popularized through our nursery rhymes and our cultural consciousness from our books and our movies that I would start down by the Thames and by the Houses of Parliament, see Big Ben, make sure you get that whole city skyscape moment, Uh, see the, you know, the red telephone boxes. And then I definitely would recommend going to St. Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Abbey. If you only have a day, maybe just pick one of them. But both of them are just so rich in history and so normalized in, you know, our story life and our love. I mean, Mary Poppins, Feed the Birds, Tuppence a Bag, that's on the steps of St. Paul's. So I would do that. Wander along Fleet Street, which will bring you back to the heart of London. I would go to Leicester Square, which is where all the, you know, theaters and marquees are. I definitely make sure to pop into a little pub somewhere for fish and chips. And and again, this is in the before times, before COVID, there are, <laughs> there are little ticket boxes that you can go to in Leicester Square and in Piccadilly to get cheap tickets to a West End show that night. And so I often would, at the end of a research day, I recommend trying to see a West End show. And often you can get very cheap tickets if you go the same day. They're not the greatest seats in the world, but it's definitely worth it to try and take in some theater in London as well. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Now, your hero, Brent, suffers from PTSD. What kind of research did you have to do to get that to be accurate? Yeah, and I love that you picked that up because we don't actually say PTSD in the book only because the men who were coming back from the war were not diagnosed, right? There was the diagnosis of shell shock, but we're in a far better state in the world right now to recognize and to treat mental illness. And so with Brent, he actually shares what my grandfather, my opa, did during the war. And that is that my opa was a stretcher bearer for the Canadian Armed Forces. We entered the war earlier than the States because we are a colony, right, with Britain. And he was overseas for years. And he wanted to be a stretcher bearer because he never wanted to fire a gun. So he didn't carry a gun, he carried men. And so I give that to Brent, but a lot of Brent's PTSD and a lot of the symptoms come from stories from my mom and my aunts who grew up 
when my opa would have moments, nightmares, flashbacks, that kind of thing. I do remember as a little kid, unfortunately, my opa died when I was in my teens. But I remember if we went to the fireworks on Canada Day, he didn't enjoy that. He didn't like the sound because it brought back the sound of artillery fire. So a lot of that came from him. But a lot just came from reading firsthand accounts of men who would get back and find it really difficult to start their lives in the way that they had left them. They were kind of thrown back into the workforce and expected to keep calm and carry on as if nothing had happened. And I did read several accounts of how, you know, the divorce rate skyrocketed because people didn't know their spouses anymore. But there was also something more dangerous with some of the soldiers suffering from PTSD. They accidentally hurt their spouses during nightmares or they'd grab them or they'd accidentally hit them over and i i found that to be really interesting two people reigniting their love story and here you have something that can be unintentionally dangerous so a lot of firsthand accounts trying to give a nod to my grandfather just trying to imagine i think what it would be like to live with this constant anxiety but also with brent i feel a bit of survivor guilt as well because his mates didn't make it back and he did and he he's has an injury and a scar, but he's kind of well off. So that's that's kind of what I went into with Brent. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, you mentioned that you are a voracious reader. What are you reading right now? And do you have any books that you'd recommend for us? I'm currently reading A Portrait of Loyalty by Rosanna White. And what I love about this is she writes the Codebreakers in Room 40 in the First World War. And a lot of that history transfers over to Bletchley Park, which is research I did for London Restoration, which is fantastic for me. And it's wonderful. It's a historical romance. I would say one of my big recommendations this year, because I absolutely loved it, is Set the Stars Alight by Amanda Dykes. It is a split time. The current modern portion is partly set in London, which is wonderful. And it deals with two people trying to find out the mystery of a shipwreck from the Napoleonic Wars. And it's just beautiful writing, very romantic. And I actually read it in one sitting. I stayed up till 3am. It was not my finest moment, but I just couldn't put the book down. So those are two books that I'm really enjoying right now. I also, uh, you know, I'm revising Mozart Code and I have another third World War II book coming out in 2022. So I've started reading the research books for that. So there's just a lot. And that one's going to be set in France, in Nazi-occupied France. So I'm, I'm kind of getting into Paris in that period, which is interesting. Very interesting. Tell us, what is one thing you wish your readers knew about you? I, I wish that they could know And I get this a lot because I do write for Thomas Nelson, which is a Christian imprint, but the faith elements in my books are often subtle and more thematic. London Restoration tends to be a little bit more overt because Brent is a professor of theology and, of course, the churches. But in Mozart Code, the faith themes are not as apparent as you would find in Christian fiction. But that doesn't mean that I'm not writing them. I just approach 
faith writing in a slightly different way. I liken this to we all go to different types of churches. I happen to go to an Anglican church, which is, you know, a little bit more reserved, whereas some people go to churches that are, you know, upbeat and lots of worship courses. They're all legitimate. We just all approach faith in a different way. And so I wish readers would know that everything that you take away from the book where you think that, oh, she might be working with a question of faith here, it is very intentional. I have a scripture verse for every book that I write. So Matthew 16, 18 for the London Restoration and in Mozart Code, store not your treasures on earth. So I, I, I just wish my readers would know that even if you don't always see it, it's, it's definitely there. And I just want them to think about their faith experience in a different way than other books that are wonderful in making it more blatant. That's a good point to make, and I'm glad that you brought that out to the readers because it is clear there that there is some kind of faith element, but like you said, it's much more subtle than in other books. That doesn't make it any better or worse. It's just a different way of writing. Yeah, we all do a little, and I read it, I, I mean, I love all sorts of Christian fiction, but I also really intentionally want to try and find readers beyond the Christian marketplace, and I think that that is a way that we can make it, that I can make it more accessible for them as well. Now, you also mentioned to me that you are an agent. Yes. Why did you get into agenting? Well, I left my corporate educational publishing job of 12 years a few years ago, and I was really at a crossroads as to what to do next, because I, as much as I love writing, that's not always the one thing as a single woman, I support myself, I needed to have a bit of a backup and something else to do at the same time. And I hadn't thought about being an agent, but it was really a providential thing. Within the span of about two weeks, two summers ago, I got private messages from authors saying, if you ever decide to become a literary agent, let me know, because they either wanted to query me or their agent was retiring. And I hadn't about it. But at the same time, Bill Jensen, the Jensen agency is where I'm an associate agent. One of his agents left to take a job in a publishing house. So at the same time that I was hearing from people and trying to think about, oh, this could be a viable career option for me, an opening happened at my agency. And it was just this kismet moment. And so Bill, I call it agent school. He trained me and he still helps me so much, but I, that's how I got into it. It was me at a bit of a crossroads of decision of what I wanted to do next and really being guided into that role as a, this is where there are signs that this is where you're supposed to be. And it's been quite a lot of fun. That does sound interesting. It seems like most authors have some type of backup thing that they're doing, either a day job or agenting or editing or something like that. Yes. Any parting words for the listeners today? I just encourage you to recognize that we can learn so much about what we're going through right now from the resiliency of the people who lived in time periods before us. And I was really, really excited that so many people are finding some kind of strength and inspiration from reading stories like London Restoration, which show 
how people made it through difficult times. Clearly, this year is a difficult year in many ways. Uh, the pandemic, so many people suffering hurricanes and wildfires. There's so much going on. And London Restoration is a glimpse into how people were resolutely rebuilding. They were rebuilding their relationships the Londoners were determined to rebuild their city. And I think that we can take that attitude of this too shall pass. We can keep going. We've got the strength to suck it up and carry on. And I think that we can take that as a as a balm, as something comforting, because people do get through trying times. And I, I hope that people read London Restoration and come out encouraged because of that facet of it. Beautifully said. So on that note, then, um, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time, but I wanted to thank you so much for joining us. You have been a terrific guest, and I have learned an awful lot by listening to you, and we are so pleased that you decided to join us. Thank you so much, Liz, and uh, we'll talk again in the future about World War II books. Very great. We will count on that. Before we sign off here, I wanted to just give you a couple of reminders. First of all, you can find out more about Rachel and about her books in the show notes, and those are on the podcast website, which is christianhistoricalfiction.buzzsprout.com. So be sure to go there and take a look at some of Rachel's other books and perhaps pick up for yourself a copy of The London Restoration if you haven't read it already. Also, I would love it if you would stop by my website, which is liztolsma.com, and check out what I have going on there. I think you might find some things that are very interesting there as well. If you are not a subscriber to the podcast yet, I would encourage you to please Go to your favorite podcast site and subscribe. We are on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play. Amazon has just started a new podcasting service, so we will be on there as soon as that is up and running as well. Wherever you can find a podcast, we're likely there. So please look up Christian Historical Fiction Talk and subscribe so that you do not miss out on a single episode. Also, just a little note that this episode is brought to you by Barber Publishing's new Christmas novella collection called A Joyful Christmas. These six historical romances are sure to warm your heart and get you into the holiday spirit. So be sure to check out A Joyful Christmas. I will have a link for it in the show notes, or you can also find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, christianbook.com, or your favorite local retailer. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Christian Historical Fiction Talk, and I hope to see you next time. Mm -hmm.